The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. Hi, I'm Jessica Richmond, and it is time to talk about extreme periods. Welcome to Flow. I'm here with public health advocate powerhouse Christy Van Horn, and we want to know, how's your flow? Welcome once again to Flow. Christy, hello. Let's jump right in. How is your flow? So my flow was really annoying this last time. I have to be honest. You know, I was getting excited. I thought that it was over, but no, it came back with a vengeance. And to think that you're done and then to have like full on flow is really effing annoying. The cat came back. The very next day. Yeah. Anyone familiar with that? Yeah, when your period, when you think it's gone, you're like you're ready for your last day to be now entering into luteal phase. Yes. And instead, boom, she, she back. back. She came back. And it wasn't like a little. It was like full on. Yeah, that's how my flow was. How about you? I hope you have better news than I do. It's weird, man. No, having a, having a period is weird. Sometimes they're weird. I know there's... No such thing as TMI for us here on Flow and in conversations around menstruation. Let's just talk about it. I had a, like a big watery gush during it, like midway through. And I'm re-listening to our own episodes because I know these symptoms have come up before. It happens at every subsequent period. It's something I should definitely investigate. For now, I will say online, if you look up big watery gush during <laughs> period, most people are commenting like, yeah, it's weird, right? Hey, that happened to me once and never again. Me personally, Jessica, it's happened one time like three years ago during a period. The best, here's the explanation I could find for it. I do vigorously look at my own blood reports. So my bun levels are a little low. I'm vegan-y. I'm vegan. I like to say I'm vaguely vegan. So it's like time to up the protein. Ah, that could be a cause and that's effect. That's really interesting. But there's not actually research to say if that's true. It's not. just possibly the cause. Yeah. Of course there's not research. The next time we get a doc on, we should ask those specifically about this. Oh, I went out of love that. Like, is there a name for this? <laughs> the big the watery big gush? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's just a reminder that, you know, managing menstruation is complex. Just having something like that out of the blue is something now I have to pay attention to. More complexity. It's so true. It's so, so true. And for so many of us, at one time or another during these reproductive, active menstruation years, you know, we have all these complexities going on. And we've talked about so many of them, right? Like, pre-menopause during the hormone episode and fibroids happening later in life for women. There's just so much. This week, we are going to be talking more about endometriosis. So last episode, we had patients on. So make sure to go back and listen to that incredible episode if you haven't. And this is part two of our endometriosis or endo is complex. So complex. So complex, and we're very, very lucky that we have Dr. Fitzgerald with us today, or the interview that we recorded with Dr. Fitzgerald, to unpack some of the medical reasons that endometriosis is complex. Let's get into it right after this quick break. 
This ad is brought to you by Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. Hi, I'm Nicole. Discussing certain topics can make us feel vulnerable, embarrassed, or just plain awkward. But real issues deserve real talk. It's time to normalize talking about what's happening in our bodies, especially when it comes to our health needs. To get the conversation started, download a discussion guide at vonvendi, that's V-O-N-V-E-N-D-I dot com slash vonvendi dash support. Dr. Fitzgerald, thank you. Welcome to Flow. We are so excited to have you with us today. Do you mind just start by giving us a short introduction of who you are, what you do, where you live? Yes, of course. <laughs> what's your sign? Oh, what's my sign? I'm a Gemini. Oh. Um, so I don't know what version of me you're going to get today. We're going to get <laughs> um, <laughs> My name is Jocelyn Fitzgerald. I am an assistant professor of urogynecology and female pelvic reconstructive surgery at the University of Pittsburgh. That is the big formal title of what I do, but also known as a urogynecologist. I primarily surgical management of women with pelvic floor disorders. So many of those originate with endometriosis. So that's, I think, what we'll be talking about today. I mentioned I'm at the University of Pittsburgh, so I was born and raised here, but I did most of my medical training actually outside of Pittsburgh. I did my residency in gynecology and obstetrics at Johns Hopkins and my fellowship training in female pelvic reconstructive surgery at Georgetown University, where I actually also got, and we'll talk about this more too, I was part of the National Center for Advanced Pelvic Surgery, where pelvic floor surgeons and endometriosis surgeons were part of the same group and worked together very seamlessly. So I trained both, which maybe is why I'm interested in this topic. So that's just a little bit about me. Great. Our last episode, we interviewed two patients and also the founder of an organization called Endo Black, which advocates for Black women with endometriosis. I love their Instagram. Yeah, they're amazing, right? Yes. So this episode, we want to make sure we cover the basics. And so we're really providing our listeners with a more holistic view of, you know, and medical view, really, of what endometriosis is. The first question is basic, but we know that it's complex. (laughs) What is endometriosis? How does it impact the body? Dear God, like how much time do you have? (laughs) Very much disclose that there are brilliant, beyond brilliant people that study this in a very basic science, molecular biomedical engineering way that like I am never going to do their their level of understanding of the pathophysiology of endometriosis justice but I'll use like the sort of blanket version of what we tell women because there's so much that we don't understand so like I almost feel sometimes like I'm lying to them I'm like well this is what we think it is but like in 20 years we might know this is something completely different but the short version is that endometriosis is a disease where the lining of the uterus, which is called the endometrium, in theory has a sort of retrograde path where instead of shedding every month and becoming all the blood we know and love on tampons and pads, it goes that tissue, that same tissue, which is designed biologically to turn over monthly, those cell types, at least the progenitor cells of endometrium wind up elsewhere in the body 
theoretically, they come out through the fallopian tubes and then plant their little selves in the deep pelvis, around the bowels. They're just like in the abdomen in places that are no longer being contained by the uterus. How they got there is a hot topic of debate. But what we do know is that microscopically, those cells share the same genetics and histology, which means like under microscope, they look just like endometrium. So they respond in a monthly cyclic fashion to the same hormonal triggers that the inside lining of your uterus does. So, you know, if you don't get pregnant, you get a period and the endometriosis tissue is responding to those hormonal changes in the same way. That's what it is. <laughs> and it hurts. <laughs> and it hurts. Wow. What incredible imagery in like understanding the internal organs of the body. You just said could see it happening. In my mind's eye. We're back to Mrs. Frizzle's school bus. This is also a deceivingly simple question with an anticipated wide range of answers. What are the symptoms? How does that, what's going on in the body show up for people? What are the symptoms of endometriosis? Right. This is also so challenging. So there is a pretty well held, at least understanding or belief about endometriosis. Now that like not all endometriosis is created equal, like the genetics of each subtype might be totally different because for some women, I think we probably will spend the majority of this podcast talking about pain and that, you know, people have been screaming into the internet. Thank God for the internet lately, you know, is like, oh, I have the most painful periods ever, but they're not just like periods. They're this deeply wounding experience where like your bladder is affected, your bowels, the cramps, the stabbing, the vaginal pain. It's like this whole milieu of agony that women experience. That's like how most people say it shows up. You'll hear a story about a teenage girl who's like, I could not go to school when I had my period, which is so crazy, like so crazy for anyone to think that that's normal. But I think we like all know friends that just like didn't come to school once a month, which is wild. But then like, there's this other like brand of endometriosis that isn't painful. And people a lot of times don't find out they have it until they either try to get pregnant. And they're like, oh, like I didn't have pain, but my fallopian tubes are all scarred. So they have all this scar tissue. And sometimes that's how a symptom of endometriosis is infertility. And then like another one, even just, you have no symptoms like at all. And you end up needing some type of abdominal pelvic surgery for another reason. And then the surgeon is like, oh my God, like all your intestines are scarred together. Like how did this happen? And the pathology comes back as endometriosis. So I'd say those are probably like the big ones, but it can really be sneaky. Like there are women who have like pulmonary symptoms from their endometriosis. Like they have it on their diaphragm and lots of other crazy things that it can mimic. Yeah, I actually was, I was a guest on a podcast with a woman who didn't know she had endometriosis until she started to try and have a child and she was infertile. Is that common? You know, I'll leave these statistics. Do we not have enough data? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I think the, re so this is another thing is maybe you'll learn on this podcast. I always try to like put in a plug for like the subspecialties of OBGYN. Like I think a lot of people think like OBGYN, like everyone is the same. That could not be farther from the truth. There are like general OBGYNs who have, are experts in like outpatient OBGYN medicine, like fairly straightforward, like pregnancy management and like mostly non-surgical GYN. 
But then in there's so many fellowships doing OBGYN. And then if you want to be a subspecialized pelvic surgeon or an endometriosis specialist or an infertility specialist, a gynecologic cancer specialist, you do three to four years of additional training beyond the four years of OBGYN. So I say all that just to say that the infertility piece and the people who are like really good at that are the reproductive endocrinology and infertility doctors. I think a lot of people don't realize how much endocrinology infertility doctors do. I think they just like, oh, they do IVF, but that is so not the case. And so, you know, I don't know the exact number of what infertility ends up being endometriosis, but I would guess it's pretty high. Like my guess would be like a third, but I'd have to look that up. I'd have to phone a friend. I like that phone a friend. So it is common. Not It's not uncommon if you're experiencing infertility. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Not uncommon. I'm just thinking about the severity range. You know, it, does it come and go? Um, is there a typical time frame when the, the pain starts in, in a woman or a person's life? There's like so many commonalities and stories I hear from my patients, but also so many differences. Like there's just so much we don't know about endometriosis and you know, we can blame that on the fact that women's research on women's health is like a hundred years behind men's, you know, some like the classic stories. Yeah. Like a young girl that gets her period. Maybe it's like a little irregular first, let's say she's 12 or 13. And then, you know, they progressively become like more and more painful. And maybe it's just cyclic, like monthly for a few days, the pain is really debilitating. But then it just like, there's a lot of sort of branch points in that story, depending on maybe what medications they're put on, maybe like what kind of access to specialists they have that could really change the natural history of their pain. Again, like we don't have like a ton of data on this because tracking this kind of thing really falls apart between specialties. So like girls will get their period when they're 11, 12, 13 but they don't see a gynecologist until they're 18, 19, 20, 21. So who's like managing their periods in that time? There's a lot of general gynecologists who like won't see an adolescent patient. Um, So there are like pediatric and adolescent gynecology specialists, but that's becoming only now more popular, like number of locations across the country that will train you as a subspecialist in adolescent gynecology is I don't think there's more than 20 of them. Like they're, it's very rare. And then like pediatricians, they're not really getting any training in female reproductive health because, you know, like why would they? They're mostly taking care of kids. So I think that there's a lot of girls that like fall through the cracks and they end up living in pain for years. And by the time they get to their diagnosis, the horse is a little bit out of the barn. Not to mention the fact that in a teenage girl, there's not very much you're going to do besides put them on some type of hormonal suppression off the beaten path of your question. It's like, what is the range of pain? But the range of pain is huge. And like the number of organs that neighbor the uterus or where these endometriotic implants are can vary enormously from patient to patient. And a lot of it is dependent on how quickly they have the diagnosis and how knowledgeable the providers they have access to are. I want to give a quick shout out to one of our our guest that's been on the podcast twice and has a organization called Girlology. Dr. Holmes's partner is a pediatric 
specialist in OBGYN. So I just want to give them a shout out. And if there are moms listening to this, you know, maybe Girlology is a great resource for them. Thank you so much for highlighting that. And I think just another little plug here is, you know, make sure that you're listening to people who are are menstruating. If they're extreme, you know, if they're experiencing that extreme pain, believe them and, and try to find them the care that you can. So I, yeah, I think that was a great point that we hadn't thought about. So thank you for that. You're welcome. I mean, it just, I think that there is this old fashioned thought that it's normal for Mm. girls to have periods that painful, but that is a huge red flag. Yet we've all had like some menstrual cramps. Okay. You take some ibuprofen and you like get on with your business. This is so different than that. If someone cannot go to school, that is a problem. Like you need to like get to the bottom of that and not just keep them at home in bed. That's when I would say that's a red flag and you need to push a little harder. You know, I know we're going to ask in a second about the challenge of diagnosis, which sounds like it is related to the level of pain someone might be feeling. If that's the main tool by which someone determines that they seeking a diagnosis is necessary or looking for an answer. It just begs the question, pain in general is still monitored by a pretty antiquated system. Is that right? I've seen it in hospitals. It's like the faces, like emojis from like really frowny to really happy. Is that the way in which it's more pain related than endo, but is that still how the best tool by which pain can be managed? I do like research on endometriosis pain and I still include it in all of my studies. I mean, the way that you qualify pain is so complicated many like really great scales of pain and they've changed very much over time to capture like what pain is affecting in your life but to your point yes the the visual analog scale the vas scale which is the emoji faces is still very much used and yeah i don't you know i i would have to find a a paper on this there's a lot of research on like the interpretation I would not be surprised if you compared like VAS scale pain in a hospital for what women are reporting. I would be willing to bet much more often the person in taking that patient is like, are you really like an eight? Cause like you look fine, you know, whereas like a man who says he's an eight. I mean, we have a lot of research to say this, like we also have a lot of data now to show how much more quickly men are seen in emergency rooms and in acute care settings than women are. So that could be a whole other podcast. It could. Here, here's hoping that continuing to talk about it helps shift that. And That's having it. more women who are doctors because yes. the number that those metrics improve when patients see that, like doctors see themselves in the patients they're taking care of. Yes. And more women doing research. Only one third of the researchers at NIH are women. I, just throwing that stat out there because it matters so much to what you're saying. Let's talk about diagnosis. We know that it takes an average rate of seven to 11 years to be diagnosed with with endometriosis. Why? Yeah, there's so many reasons for this. So one of them we've kind of already talked about is this hole, this valley that teenagers fall into, right? You start, let's say you start menstruating at 12, like I said before. By the time you, at this point, like the recommendations for past need one until you're 21 years old. So let's just say that like you, it's entirely possible you wouldn't even see an adult gynecologist from the ages from 12 to 21. I mean, right. If you don't have access and you know, life takes over your high school student, then you go to college and like, you know, who knows? 
So like easily many of those years can be accounted for just by the fact that there isn't the right doctor (laughs) for someone in their teenage years with reproductive issues. So that's the first answer. The second one is that endometriosis, at least like upfront, is a clinical diagnosis. So, well, let me back up one, one second. Once somebody like receives that diagnosis by the defining parameters that exist currently for definitively giving someone a diagnosis of endometriosis, it has to be biopsy proven. And the only way you can get a biopsy of endometriosis is to do abdominal surgery, which now thank God is almost totally minimally invasive and laparoscopic but you still have to like be in a place in your life where you can go get a surgery to get an actual piece of tissue, send it to a lab and have them say, this is endometrial tissue that is outside of the uterus, therefore making this endometriosis. So that's like the only way you can officially get that diagnosis. Up to that point, you're putting together what the patient is saying, the symptoms that they have, and presumptively saying, this is what I think you have because we've ruled everything else out. And in a young woman, you know, the, we don't have that many treatments for endometriosis. We have hormonally driven things like birth control pills, injections. And I, we need to come up with like another word for like, we call it hormonal suppression sometimes, but there's also like some new fancy drugs called Orlissa, like things that are more targeted specifically for endometriosis to like hormonally suppress this cyclic response this tissue has to your menstrual cycle and like the waves of hormones that you have each month. You know, since you kind of put patient in the position of being like, well, you can either take hormonal suppression or you're getting surgery, neither of which might change the outcome of your disease necessarily. People put tend to put surgery off as long as they can. Like they wait until somebody has failed these hormonal therapies. So I think people have a pretty low threshold, I, I would assume, to like put young women on birth control pills or hormonal contraception, but they kind of dabble around with that for years before someone has breakthrough pain bad enough that they find an actual surgeon to look in their belly and figure out what's going on. So that that's probably why. Plus like endometriosis can present, the pain isn't always like, oh, my periods are brutally painful every month. Sometimes the first sign of endometriosis is a bladder condition where you have painful urination um, or sex is painful. Sometimes that's the way like the first symptom people have, they're like, oh, I can kind of deal with my crampy periods, but it hurts when I have sex. And then, you know, whoever they see doesn't like say to themselves, oh my God, this might be endometriosis because the organ system they're complaining about isn't uterine. That's another way it gets delayed. And as we've already alluded to and and said during the podcast is, you know, women are dismissed, ignored, not trusted, all of those pieces as well. I do have a really quick follow-up question. Does surgery, so say you have surgery and you have the endo removed, does that help with fertility issues? From my understanding, it does. You know, it's case by case. You know, the other thing about endometriosis is it's a very pro-inflammatory condition. So the better it can be managed if there's less inflammation near the fallopian tubes, the ovaries, the uterus, the higher chance of like a successful implantation. But not all endometriosis surgery is created equal. And that's a big problem too. You know, it's it hasn't been that long that endometriosis experts, people who specialize in minimally invasive gyneco- gynecologic surgery, has existed. Like that field of specialization has actually not been around for that long. 
And so the variation in skill of a surgeon going into a woman's abdomen to look for endometriosis is like all over the map, depending on that person's surgical training. So, you know, for years, people were doing what's called like a diagnostic laparoscopy for pain, which I think now people think is pretty unethical, actually, if you are going in someone's belly looking for endometriosis, you better be prepared to remove it or you shouldn't be looking at all. Mm -hmm. Why would you subject someone to two surgeries just to like put a scope in their belly button and say, yep, you have it, but like, I'm not well-trained enough to take it out. There's also like been a lot of back and forth about like, do you need to take all of it out or can you just like buzz it or like burn it? And, you know, from the experts I work with, who I get a lot of my endometriosis knowledge from, like excision really does seem to be superior to people who go in there and just like, oh, I see a spot of endometriosis, I'm just gonna burn it. Endometriosis is more of like a deep infiltrating disease that you can't always see on the surface of the abdominal cavity. It's like deeper, closer to where nerves are and like some really delicate pelvic structures that you have to really be well-trained to get out. So all of that is also to be said that like basically not all endometriosis surgery is equal. Hopefully that answers your question. Absolutely. Thank you. Just curious, it might sound odd, but do you see that changing with the experts you're around? Do you see new ways to diagnose that aren't invasive besides certainly being possible? Yeah, there's some really amazing people that post a lot about this on Twitter. Some finally, you know, as more women have gone into like radiology and imaging, suddenly there are like radiologists who have techniques to find endometriosis without surgery. I mean, I truly, I literally noticed that yesterday. I was like, oh, there's a specialist in this, but like, of course it's a, a woman and they've only just now shown up. There is on MRI some sophisticated ways that people, like things that people weren't even looking for before that are now known to be like radiographic signs of endometriosis. In like dynamic MRI, like how does this woman's like colon and rectum move in relationship to her other pelvic organs? Like you can see like if things are anchored to each other and there's certain like radiologic signs that didn't have a label or a definition before, but now they do, now that people have looked at so many women known to have endometriosis, they're like, oh, this is like something they all seem to have in this one spot. There's some people who are pretty sophisticated with ultrasound actually, not just like transvaginal ultrasound, but like pelvic floor ultrasound that like now know what they're looking for. Whereas before people were like, this is totally normal, just was that nobody had like defined the changes characteristic of endometriosis. So that's like a very new thing. I, again, not an expert on that besides like the people I follow, read what they they post, but there seems to be like this big movement towards non-invasive diagnosis and imaging, not only, you know, for patient, you know, safety purposes, but also for like surgical planning to make sure that you're going in there and you know you know, what you're getting yourself into. I'm sorry. I was going to shout out the radiologists that we're not just women doctors, but having women in all aspects of the medical team is so important. So important. Um, I'm trying to find this woman's name. I like retweeted this yesterday because I thought it was so cool. My mind was like blown by this picture in her bio. She says that that is her expertise. Like that is her imaging expertise. I found it. Okay. So it's like bowel endometriosis with extension into the pelvic floor on this person had 
like a combination of transvaginal ultrasonography and MRI. And they found this like huge thing. What's the account? We'll include it in the show notes. Yeah. Well, because it's her like Twitter handle is not like her name. Her name is Luciana Chamey, C-H-A-M-I-E. And it says female pelvic imaging specialist, endometriosis specialist, abdominal radiologist. Um, And she specializes in looking for deep infiltrating endometriosis. So I thought that was super interesting. Here's the picture. Oh, that big black blob is endometriosis. And she's like mapping it in three dimensions to its relationship with the pelvic floor, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, we will definitely ask you for that link to include in our show notes so listeners can see it too. So interesting. So interesting. So on our last episode, which was part one, we one of our patients was told she had endo. That was the clinical diagnosis. And then in robotic hysterectomy, after surgery, was told it was actually fibroids. So curious if, if from your expertise... She, you know if that's common, if that specific condition is commonly misdiagnosed or just if endo so commonly looks like other conditions that- Sure. Yeah. Oh man, that's a tough question. I'd have to like know a little bit more about the story, the backstory of that patient. Like there's, a, I have like a lot of questions. Um, the short answer is you do have to be kind of careful, I guess, with endometriosis as like a catch-all for any type of female pelvic pain. But like the other thing I'll say is number one, like. I would imagine this one probably had some type of preoperative imaging and I'm kind of surprised they didn't like see her fibroids. Fibroids are one of those, like one of the few things in gynecologic radiology that you're like, oh, look, fibroids, like that we can see. We're like pretty good at finding those. So I would just be curious as to like why they didn't anticipate she had fibroids when they got in there. And also you can have fibroids and endometriosis at the same time. And the last thing I'll say is that there's a lot of like, uterine pathologies that are on a spectrum. So there's a thing called adenomyosis, which I don't know if you, I'm sure you probably talked about on this podcast, especially if you talk about painful bloody periods, because that is like the queen of both of those things. It's like they, like fibroids usually cause like the blood and endometriosis cause the pain. And like adenomyosis is like a hideous marriage of the two. And, you know, in theory, adenomyosis is like, it's like endometriosis, but instead of the endometriotic tissue being outside of the uterus, it grows like into the muscle of the uterus. Mm -hmm. So the uterine muscle, when it like squeezes to try to have a period happen, like the cramping sensation, it like bleeds like into itself. So like the muscle of the uterus is like having all this inflammation and bleeding like into space it should not be. And that is like a really hideous condition and also you can't really diagnose it any other way but surgery but big asterisks like that's changing with some more sophisticated radiologists people knowing what they're looking for and like fibroids and adeno and endo are kind of like on this spectrum so what I would say to that is it's entirely possible that this patient had more than one thing going on but I would also say that sometimes fibroids definitely cause pain and maybe you know her symptoms were consistent with a more endo type picture. The last thing I'll say about that, just in case anyone was under the completely unfounded impression that hysterectomy is the cure for pelvic pain, it is not. Only 20% of pelvic pain gets better with a hysterectomy. Women across America think like all their problems will be solved with a hysterectomy and like nothing could be farther from the truth. And I think that a lot of like maybe general OBGYNs or you know people who don't see a ton of endo I get these patients myself all the time. They come to me and they still have all these symptoms 
And they're like, well, I had a hysterectomy. I don't understand why it still hurts. Like my doctor told me it would all get better as soon as my uterus was gone. Like that is so not true. We haven't talked quite yet about like the mechanism of how endometriosis is so pro-inflammatory that it like sensitizes all the nerves in the pelvis, which is why you get all these neighboring symptoms in the bladder and the bowel and vagina and the pelvic floor. All these nerves are like on high alert plus the pelvic floor. It's like anytime you're in any type of pain, you like brace the muscles around what hurts. Like you tense them to like take pressure off that area and make things hurt less. And women who have endometriosis, who usually, as you've pointed out, have been waiting so long for their diagnosis, they aren't even fully aware of like how much the, the muscles and nerves are in spasm, are sensitized around these implants they've had for so long. So removing the uterus, like, yeah, I mean, it gets rid of your endometrium, but it's not getting rid of any endometriotic implants that are outside of the uterus, which is the definition of endometriosis. And they probably haven't had any pelvic floor rehab. They haven't addressed the pain in all these other organs. That disappoints women a lot. And I think that's a very commonly held misconception that once you have like your, your babies and you're done with your uterus, you, it needs to come out and you'll get better. And that sadly is just not true. And people get really mad about it. Right, because it's more complex than that. I actually just want to quickly add that one, it was in the end, this patient who was our guest in part one uh, was diagnosed then with fibroids and adenomyosis. Adenomyosis. Adeno. Yeah. Oh, that's the, okay. Exactly. That's the same condition I was just saying. Gotcha. Yeah. So she basically had like this spectrum disorder that goes from fibroids to endo. So I wouldn't be surprised if she had all three. I am almost in tears and like I have chills over here. I started my period today and I like have been bitching about it all day. And I'm like, I can't, I can't imagine what this pain feels like the way you're describing it and the nerves. And I'm just like, I- It is, it's like I, your vagina is on fire. Like all the neighbors oh, <laughs> in the pelvis. I just want to hug every person with endometriosis. To deal with pain, Bloodstream Media has another podcast called The Pain Podcast. It really is its own topic to just the cope, coping with it and the impact of it. So knowing that is a, pain is a huge part of endo, but endo itself as a condition outside of removal and outside, I guess we, we talked about it, hormone suppression. Are there any other treatments or even just treatments of symptoms that you find assist? Yeah, patients. At this juncture, honestly, like the definitive treatments really are limited to hormonal modification and, and surgery pretty much. And I'll also say one other thing, which is that, you know, Orlissa is kind of like the only brand name drug that's like specifically FDA approved for endometriosis. But like any new fancy drug that doesn't have a generic, no one can afford it. It's so expensive. Mm. So it's sort of like, oh, I have all sorts of patients. I'm like, oh man, I like, you know, they'll even be like, oh, I got a trial of it that I could afford. Like the drug company gave me this amount and it worked and I felt so great. And then it's like, oh, but it, I can't like afford to stay on the medicine. So like that is another big hurdle. It's like if we come up with a treatment for endometriosis, which would be, which would be amazing. Like there's so many diseases like that where these brilliant researchers are like discovering stuff. It ends up not mattering because like our healthcare system is so broken that no one can afford these treatments even if they exist. So it's like, what do we even what do we even do? So like the second part, I know it's so bad. The second part of your question is like, can you treat 
in other ways. Like, of course you can treat the symptoms. And this is honestly more of what I do, especially after a patient has had their endometriosis excised. I see like a lot, I'd say like women who want to maintain the fertility and don't, but that's, that's the other kickers. Like in young women, if you do an endometriosis excision and they want to get pregnant, you kind of just like need to do the surgery and then be like, get pregnant as fast as you can before, you know, it comes back or like before Mm. your symptoms, you know, flares. So you're sort of like, playing this race against time because you can't put them on hormones because they won't be able to get pregnant. So you're like, I cannot even imagine the stress for those patients. Be like, I'm in so much pain. I just had this painful surgery. And now I have this like very small window with which to get pregnant before I can like go back on hormonal suppression to treat these things. But you absolutely can use a combination of like a lot of things. And I actually recommend that people use a combination of things because the pain is so multifactorial. There's like an inflammatory component there's a musculoskeletal component. There's usually a hollow organ component, meaning like your bladder, your bowels. You can put people on a number of like neuroactive pain meds that are like non-narcotic. Mm. Sometimes like something like amitriptyline or like Elevil, put someone on that. Or like a gabapentin, like some kind of pain medication that acts on small nerves, which is a lot of times like these visceral nerves that are causing so much pain in women. If they have bladder symptoms, that's like a whole other thing, but I put them on like a slew of medications and there's other treatments you can do for bladder pain, overactive bladder, urinary urgency. You can treat their bowel symptoms with some type of medication to manage their symptoms. Almost all women with endometriosis have IBS. Like it is, mm. like a, it might as well be a hundred percent probably. It's like the number is so high. Um, and then one of the other like best things is that these women like must have a relationship with a pelvic floor physical therapist. That is probably the most effective thing because like I said, this, it's almost like you have a Charlie horse in your vagina, like a leg cramp, you can't stretch it out, but you get it in your pelvic floor. And so it can make like using the toilet at all, just like very challenging because you can't really relax to urinate or have a bowel movement. It makes sex like incredibly painful. And it's going to be a vicious cycle as long as the endo is active. So having an ongoing relationship with someone who can help with relaxation techniques can like actually do like internal manipulation, massage, targeted therapies of the pelvic floor. I do a lot of like pelvic floor injections for the same reason, like nerve injections. Some of these things a little bit feel like a bandaid on a bullet hole if you haven't had the endo excised and are on suppression, but they do help. One thing in all that, I'd probably pick the pelvic floor physical therapy. I don't think anyone with endometriosis should be without one, frankly. Not to get it complicated, but I'm sure advocating for your health insurance to cover that kind of treatment is its own journey. It is. It is. I mean, I have like rarely felt more useless as a doctor than the days when I'm like, I know what would help you. I'm going to tell you, but I can't for like make your insurance company cover it. I haven't had too many people where I work just based on like how my health system insures people. So I really haven't had anyone who was unable to get pelvic floor physical therapy. But that being said, there's still barriers. Like there's a certain number of sessions you can have per year, like time. I mean, I would not be able to get pelvic floor physical therapy. Like I'm a surgeon. I work a bajillion hours. I'm like happy we did this today on a day that I have administrative time and I'm like working from doing research and stuff from home. But yeah, I mean, like just to recommend to someone like, oh, you need weekly pelvic floor physical therapy and assume that they could afford to leave their job to do that is in and of itself crazy. And then you think about hourly workers who literally cannot take that time off. 
Yeah. Not afford the copay. Like, I mean, even if you go to 20 bucks or 40 bucks a pop, it's like for some people that is not attainable. And that's not like a rare thing for someone to be like, sorry, I I cannot. Yeah, absolutely. Just a quick follow-up question around symptoms and treatment. Does it help when women start to go through menopause? Yes, it usually does. The majority of women do say that's the case. If they have like at that point, if they get to that point, you know, I mean, you're like 50 when you go through menopause, if they have a lot of centralized, which is a fancy word for like their nervous system becomes imprinted with this pain. So they feel it even if it's not there anymore, it is still there, but their nerves don't know the difference because they've basically remodeled into a form that feels pain all the time. You know, that will get better with like pelvic floor physical therapy. And if you're lucky, like some really intensive combination therapy, like what I've sort of talked about, but short answer is that yes, it does get better after menopause. That's great. It's a long time to wait though. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes. 120%. Yes. Your whole lifetime of like yeah. missed opportunities because yeah. you like couldn't function because of your endo. And now you're like, well, maybe at 50, my life will begin. I mean, that's insane. Oh yeah. That is insane. I know speaking of time as you were, we're getting close to the end of ours and it's been so enriching to have you unpack some of this complexity with us. I don't know. We talked a little bit about the future, about predictions and things that are coming up. Is there, just asking you to be psychic, no big deal. Is there a way you see the disease state of endometriosis changing? Say the way it was different five years ago with even awareness versus the research that's being done now and how that can change what five years from now looks like? Man, I really do. I think there's a few things that will happen, all of which, I mean, not. I have like some great male colleagues, but I have to say like <laughs> a lot of credit needs to go to like women going into just like STEM fields in general. This woman, she's a professor at MIT, herself has endo. She's been operated on like seven times and now she runs this like genetics bioengineering lab at MIT that specifically focuses on the genetic engineering of endo. She sounds just incredible. I mean, obviously she's gotten a lot of notoriety. So I think things like that, like at the highest levels of science, will that change? Absolutely. I'm not a basic scientist at MIT. I wish I was that smart. I think the other things that hopefully will change. (laughs) You just went to Johns Hopkins Medical School. I mean... (laughs) But no, I'm not this woman. So, I mean, I think like advocacy is such a big piece, but it's not just like advocacy among patients. Like I notice, I spend a lot of time on social media and like really feel strongly about the role of social media in the way in women's health and like the way that these diseases have been marginalized inside of medicine. The outcry from patients far outpaces the awareness inside of medicine because traditionally of who and still who like, holds the power in medicine. It is still very much like an old boys club when you look at who is in charge of departments, divisions, research dollars. So like for the consciousness of what women are screaming for to find its way into medicine and not just medicine, but like outside of OBGYN, like where there's so many women that are taking like more aware of the problems of women. I think one of the things that's going to change in the next few years is other specialties outside of being aware of endometriosis and how it presents in their patient population. So I think that like gastroenterologists are going to learn 
a lot more that like sometimes IBS can be like the first presentation of endo or, or they'll think like, oh, I should probably ask this woman about their periods. Like no one asks women about their periods except for OBGYNs. So like they don't always put that together. I think there probably will be a big shift in the way we take care of adolescent girls. I've seen that already from these um, like pediatric adolescent GYN and then like like adolescent specialists in pediatrics push there to not let these girls fall through the cracks. Same thing with like urology, general surgery. I think it's just like the more women that go into these fields, the more, the higher the chances that like that actual surgeon will be like, I have endo or like my sister has endo and this applies to what we do. OBGYN is not just this like vacuum sideshow thing. Like this filters throughout women's health, like into their lifespan. So I think that will be a big shift that hopefully will lead to earlier diagnosis. And hopefully, like I said, on like the STEM side, the treatments will become more targeted, more based in genetics, more based in like therapy. That's my big answer. I really like your crystal ball. Yes. Uh, you just saw for the future. It's great. I'll get my tarot cards out. Yes. Doctor. Yes. <laughs> Honestly. Love it. One last question. And it's, it's a quick one. So in 60 seconds, what message would you give to a person who is suffering to get a diagnosis or suffering with se- severe periods? What, what message do you want to send to, to those people who are dealing with these complicated situations? The short answer is if it's within your means geographically or monetarily, get a second opinion and get a second opinion from somebody who is trained in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. General OBGYNs are great. They're amazing, brilliant people, but they are not trained in the complexities of endometriosis surgery. And a lot of people just don't know that that subspecialty exists. So I would say like, ask your surgeon what their credentials really are when it comes to endometriosis and how many surgeries they do per year. That's another thing, a high volume surgeon. That's awesome. And I just want to put a plug in here and say that most people don't realize that your insurance will cover a second opinion. So advocate for yourself there. Know that that's that could be available for you. This was awesome. Thank you so much. I do want to ask you, do you follow the endometriosis surgeon? He actually shows surgeries. Wow. <laughs> On Yeah, I can send this account to everybody. It's really interesting because you actually see what endo looks like. There's a lot of really good accounts that will post um, some clips and the things that those surgeons do is wild. And that again, a whole other podcast, I don't want to go on another ramble, but I think that a lot of surgeons outside of subspecialized gynecologic surgery, because of the way our women's health has kind of become siloed within mm. healthcare. And that's like a whole other historical topic, surgically, what gynecologists are capable of. There's actually like a pervasive idea that gynecologic surgeons are like not real surgeons, <laughs> which is so wild because we manage these things that like no one else can do. Um, but that's like a sexism thing, (laughs) but these, and I, I love when actually with the patient's permission, when these surgeons post these videos, that people outside of gynecologic surgery, general surgeons, et cetera, can really see what we're dealing with. I mean, yeah, it's insane. I'm your biggest fan, Dr. Fitzgerald. Where can listeners follow you? What is your Twitter handle? And yeah, where's the best way to 
follow up with your Twitter, work. So I don't have to create visual content. <laughs> My Twitter handle is at J Fitzgerald MD. But I also do post a lot of this stuff on Instagram too. And my Instagram is at Pittsburgh Eurogun. Great handles. Love that. We'll find you on the social world. Yeah. Wow. Another one. (laughs) Dr. Fitzgerald's amazing. I think I need a minute to digest all that info. I'm going to have to sleep on it. But what I do want to hear because I just learned so much from Dr. Fitzgerald. And Christy, could you hit me with some tips on how to learn better? Is that a thing? (laughs) I don't know if that's a total thing, but I mean, I can give you some tips. I think we've mentioned this a few times, but there are things that I talk about in Christy's tips that really, you know, it's, it's good to repeat them, honestly. We can hear them more than once. It's helpful, right? So Google is and can be our friend, but we really need to limit our time there. I know, actually, this takes me back, Jay Rich. I feel like we talked about this when you were digging deep for some answers in the past. Is this right? Yeah, I had a little abnormal cyst that I was right. like, I'm going to Google my exactly. way out of this. Yep. So mm-hmm. there, Google can be a good thing. You know, it can help us find information. It can help us to feel more prepared for our appointments. However, it's very common for us to start feeling a little bit overwhelmed when we're looking up information online, especially if we don't have a diagnosis and we have a very complex condition such as endometriosis. So my tip there is to limit your time. So don't go down a rabbit hole. Time yourself, you know, give yourself 20 minutes, 30 minutes to look. uh, And the second you start to feel overwhelmed by information, walk away. Write the information down if you have questions, and then you can take it to your doctor when you go to your doctor. And also be careful about the sources that you use, which brings me to my next tip, trusted resources. Thanks to COVID, (laughs) it's rare that we say that, right? But there are a few silver linings. I think more people are familiar with the CDC now, right? Like people have actually heard of the CDC now. So the CDC is not just a place where we go for information about COVID, They have information and data and statistics and informational, you know, resources on endless conditions. Go there, cdc.gov, and and they have additional links and resources that you can use to find more information. I also like the Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic. And if you feel like you can handle more advanced information, ACOG, so acog.org is another great source for particularly OBGYNs. But as I said, some we know from working in the bleeding disorders community that there are patient advocates out there that can handle this information. So that would be another resource that I would recommend if you feel that you can handle more advanced information. And womenshealth.gov is also another great resource, but you would find that if you went to the CDC. I don't want to give you too much. And wait, and CDC, I wish we might know if we've paid attention, but it's the Center for Disease Control. Disease yes, control. you got it. Thank you. you got it. Yes. So it's just cdc.gov. Super easy. And if you search women's health, they'll probably also take you to the women's health. There's a whole women's health initiative under the government that will help you find more information. So lots of great resources out there that are reliable and highly recommended. So last but not least, when you're on these sites, write down what resonates with you. So 
if you are on a page and it's talking about symptoms that you have, make a note of what it is, what your symptoms are, how it relates to that so that you can share that with your doctor. And just say, you know, I was on X site and they can also help you, you know, to tell you, okay, that's that's a good resource or maybe not. And write down what you're feeling, write down your symptoms. It's a great way to feel more empowered when you go to your doctor to have those hard conversations. So those are my tips for this week. Goodness. I definitely need all those tips, particularly I like to learn from Google, but it's a good reminder that it's not all the information that I need. Half of that information is going to come from an expert doctor that I can speak to about what I learn online. I am not one of those people that's ever going to be like, don't go to Google. Everyone goes to Google. You would just have to know how to use Google. We have to be realistic about this. (laughs) Love Google. But if I check WebMD for the same, my big watery gush, I could also think I have a tumor. So, you know, it's just about not stressing yourself out with the extreme possibilities. Exactly. And just write that down, whatever you see, whatever, however WebMD describes or defines watery gush. It's so weird. If anyone's listening has had that happen, like, please DM me. Let's talk about it. Thank you for those tips, Christy. You know, I need to tell myself monthly, at least, hey, it may feel nuts to manage an unusual flow, but it's important to remember you're not crazy. Come here, baby. What do you think you are? You are not crazy. Crazy or something? Crazy! Ah! On this episode's You're Not Crazy, let's talk about why it can be hard to get a doctor's opinion. Last month, we spoke about healthcare gaslighting, something women and women of color experience far more than men. But the main blockage to getting a doctor's opinion is often the cost of care. Dr. Fitzgerald brought this up in our interview with her as well. It's a reality for far too many people that the decision to see a doctor comes down to the cost of getting into the office. Seeking medical attention and can't afford the copay or don't have insurance? One possible pathway to access medical care is to seek the support of a social worker. But until further legislation is passed to support low-income patients, there is a collective battle to fight. If you can't afford to see a doctor, you're not crazy. The stagnated healthcare system is. Check out our show notes for further reading in the article titled, Beyond the Numbers, Access to Reproductive Healthcare for Low-Income Women in Five Communities. I'm so glad you shared that. It's so true. And I think sometimes we don't realize how much we need advocacy until we actually need it, right? Maybe I don't need healthcare or I don't think that I need it right now, but what if I develop fibroids and I need that care and I don't have the insurance to cover it? So this really matters for, for all of us. We're even just thinking about why so many people go to Google is because Google, as long as you have technology, which is its own expense, is free. Whereas the permission to see a doctor often comes with a bill. And when making those decisions about, should I check these symptoms with a doctor or check with Google, if the doctor costs money, just prohibits early detection of things that could be dealt with. Absolutely. 100%. Next month, we're going to talk more about how prohibitory costs can impact women's reproductive health with the pink tax, with period poverty. So join us next month in September to hear more about that. That's it for now. Subscribe to, review, and share Flow. Referrals from you are the best way to reach new people. Share your story with us. Do you have an experience of extreme cyclical bleeding? We believe sharing these stories will support an increase in medical research and social acceptance. Bloodstream Media is more than just a rare disease podcast network. 
with shows on chronic pain, menstrual health, and Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, Dungeons and Dragons. Bloodstream Media's got a little something for everyone. Visit bloodstreammedia.com or find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to learn more. And thanks to our sponsor Takeda for their support of Flow. Flow was produced by Bloodstream Media and supported by Takeda. Shout out to creative director Amy Board and Flow's hosts, Jessica Richmond and Christy Van Horn. Flow was edited by me, Colby Crow. Our next available episode will be September 9th. Hey, that's the day after I start menstruating. <laughs>